But we've been taking a look for the past couple months at the hope of the gospel being a resurrection hope. Both Christ's resurrection and then our resurrection. If you remember, we talked about the reality that our resurrection and Christ's resurrection, it's not two different resurrections. It is one resurrection that is tied together uh, with a gap of time. We are raised from the dead. One day we will be raised by the same power that raised Jesus from the dead. Christ's resurrection is our resurrection. So this hope that we have, verses 1 to 11 of chapter 15, we saw that it is rooted in Christ and Christ alone. Then in verses 12 to 19, we saw that this hope is under attack. Just as there were individuals that said the resurrection There is no resurrection of the saints. So there will be individuals, whether it is in our culture or whether it is even in our churches, that can place the hope of the gospel under attack. And we must stand fast in the gospel. But no matter what attacks the enemy brings our way, verses 20 to 28 showed us that the hope of the gospel is thirdly unshakable. The gates of hell will not prevail against Christ's church. The end of the story is that Christ is subjugating all things to himself, that God may be all in all. And that led us in verses 29 to 34 to look at the fourth aspect of this hope of the gospel, that this hope of the gospel calls us to live awakened. That we are not to forget our hope and to be sleeping when God calls us to be awake and sober and alert. And how easy that is to do. And then we saw in verses 45 to 59 that the hope of the gospel, it is an imperishable promise. Death itself cannot take away the hope of the gospel because the hope of the gospel is a resurrection hope. And this morning, we are going to look at the fifth and the final aspect of, in 1 Corinthians 15 of the hope of the gospel. The fifth perspective of the hope of the gospel is that the hope of the gospel is to produce steadfastness in our life. I mean, what good would it be if we read about all of the glorious promises that, that God gives us all of the glorious promises that we have in Christ. And we do nothing with it. It would be like having a bank account full of cash and never utilizing those resources. The hope of the gospel calls us to steadfastness no matter what we may encounter. We do not need to waver in our Christian faith in our Christian walk, because we know that what we hold, a living hope based on the resurrection of Christ, is true. There's no need for us to cower in fear or to flee from following Jesus. Get this. Your hope, your identity, your belonging your worth, your victory, your security, your well-being, it is all linked to Christ. It's not linked to your bank account. It's not linked to your health. It's not linked to your life circumstances. It's not linked to your own life expectations. It's not linked to your children or to your spouse. It's not linked to any of those things. Everything that I mentioned is linked to Christ. So therefore, outside of Christ, we are of all people most to be pitied. But if we have come to Jesus in repentance and faith, we are not outside of him. We are in Christ and therefore we are a people of hope. 
Isn't this the greatest news you could ever receive? See, this morning I pray that the Lord would once again awaken our hearts to let this hope take root so that the lesser concerns of life do not overshadow what is true of us and for us. And as we look at this final section of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, we're going to see that Paul is going to continue answering the question that was raised in verse 39. How are the dead raised and what kind of body do they have? But this isn't a question that needs to be answered just to have knowledge. As we're going to see in verse 58 on Easter Sunday, that this reality and hope, it is to produce a fervency, a, a trust, a commitment that we have in the Lord. So as we look at this passage this morning, I want to once again ask you, what are you rooted in today? What has been driving your thoughts, your actions this morning? What has been driving your thoughts and actions this week? What has been driving your thoughts, your actions this past month? or this year, or these several years. We are to be looking to Christ. So I want to get, once again share with you this key principle that we have looked at throughout the entirety of the book of 1 Corinthians. If we are to be a people of hope, we have to cling to what truly matters. And that is Christ and Christ alone. What are we looking to outside of him to produce hope? This week and on Easter Sunday, we're going to be looking at how the gospel can produce steadfast hope, first of all for the future, and then secondly for the present day. This morning we're going to specifically be beginning looking in verses 50 to 53 at steadfast hope for the future. Let's pray. Lord, our hearts are prone to wander. As the, as the words to the, to the hymn say, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. And Lord, while we know that you will never leave or forsake us, Lord, we are tempted each and every day. And Lord, we trust that it is your firm, strong grip on our life that causes us not to do that. But Lord, we still struggle every day. Lord, the temptation is to root our lives, to root our hope into the things that we can see, that we can touch, that we can grasp with our senses. Lord, those things that we rationalize in our minds and Lord, all too often we leave you out of the equation. But Lord, if you are not center in our lives, Lord, we are of all people most to be pitied. So God, I pray that today you would once again reorient the compass of our lives to point true north. And true north, Lord, we know is Jesus Christ. So Lord, I pray that your spirit would be at work in our hearts. Lord, as your word is, is proclaimed, God, that the Holy Spirit would bring us true comfort, true conviction to place all of our life in your hands. And that we would walk as spirit-filled believers. Lord, I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The gospel gives us steadfast hope for the future. I just want to read verses 50 to 53, and, and you follow along, and then we're going to kind of show what steadfast hope for the future looks like in these verses. Paul writes, I tell you this, brothers, 
Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. In a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable must put on the imperishable, and this mortal must put on immortality. The first thing I want us to look at this morning is in verse 50. That the hope we have for the future that is anchored in Christ is an imperishable reality. We look here in verse 50 and it talks about that which is perishable and that which is imperishable. And the gospel is that which is imperishable. Notice Paul says in verse 50, I tell you this, brothers. Or literally, I say this, brothers. This is an opening phrase that Paul uses that says, hey, take note about what I am about to say. Because this is really important. It was a a, a speech marker that Paul highlights what he's about to say. And this is a promise, it says here, to the beloved. I say, I tell you this, brothers. I tell you this, sisters. Paul, at the very get-go of this section, this final section of 1 Corinthians he highlights the importance of our hope. Pay attention to this, Corinthian church. Pay attention to this, Covington Baptist church. Our hope is based in this reality. And in in verse 50, he continues, and he tells us the essence of this hope. Flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. I just want to give a few broad comments, and then we're going to look at the specifics of what Paul's saying here in verse 50. The first broad comment is that we have to realize our inheritance does not consist in the things of this world. It does not consist in the flesh and blood things of this world. I mean, we want to be successful in life. We want to to be able to enjoy the good things that God has given us in this life. We want to to be good at, at our jobs and maybe even get promoted at our jobs. We want to... You know, you think in your life, I, w- I would like to get married. I would like to have children. I would like to have grandchildren. Whatever the case may be. But folks, those are flesh and blood things. When those things start to become ultimate things, we are no longer living for that which is imperishable. Our inheritance does not consist in the things of this world. And the second broad comment I want to make is that a radical change must take place for us to inherit the imperishable. You see, the glorified body is a different kind of body than our earthly body. Remember in verses 35 to 41, Paul is, uh, says there's different kinds. There's, there's one kind of glory and there's another kind of glory. There's one kind of creature and another kind of creature. Paul here is answering the question in verse 39, uh, or, or answering the question, sorry, in verse 35, what kind of body Are you talking about, Paul? How are the dead raised? And he answers saying, it is of a completely different kind of body than what you possess today. Now as we get more specific, I want to give you a couple comments concerning the essence of our hope. What our hope is composed of. The first specific comment is that 
these mortal bodies cannot inherit the eternal. The hope of the gospel is a hope that is that we have in this world, but it is a hope that transcends this world. We know that we will entirely experience the hope that we possess in Christ under a new creation, under a new creation order. That the things that we are experiencing today are just a taste of what is to come, those good things that we experience. And we know the tribulations that we face today, even for following Jesus, are a part of living as aliens and strangers in this world. Do you remember Jesus' words to Nicodemus? It says, Jesus answered Nicodemus, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And Jesus answered, Truly, truly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. That which is born of the flesh is flesh, and that which is born of the Spirit is spirit. You see, Jesus is saying that in order to inherit the kingdom of God, there has to be a change that takes place. That change is first a spiritual heart change where, where we are awakened to the eternal reality, the truth that Jesus is the way to the kingdom of God. And when Christ enlivens our hearts, we then wait for the physical transformation that comes at Christ's coming. There is the spiritual transformation and then the physical, just like verse 46 of our text says. It is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. You remember in 1 Corinthians chapter 6 and verses 9 to 10 when Paul says that those that are characterized by a life of rebellion and sin against God cannot inherit the kingdom of God. You see, those whose hearts have a broken relationship with God will not inherit the kingdom of God. And there must also be a bodily change for us to inherit all that God has. The second key thing to realize regarding the essence of our hope is not simply that there must be a change, but that the perishable cannot receive what is imperishable. So flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Remember two weeks ago we looked at that in verse 42? Paul says, so it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown perishable uh, is raised. What is raised is imperishable. Remember he mentions earlier in verses 36 and 37 that the seed, which is like a, it's like a dead seed, is planted into the ground, but unless that, that seeming dead seed is planted into the ground, there could never be the harvest that is reaped. You see, the perishable cannot receive what is imperishable. The flesh and blood that characterizes our current bodies, the weakness of living under the curse of sin with bodies that... that deteriorate the promises of of heaven are imperishable so we cannot experience the promises and the realities of all that god has unless there is a physical change that happens it would be like taking your fish if you have how many of you have a pet fish okay how would you like to take your pet fish and to tie a little string like a leash and then you take your fish and you say, let's go on a walk. And then you have your fish and you make a really nice bed for that fish. What's going to happen to the fish? It's going to die. A fish is not made 
for our environment. There must be a change, and I know that's a lousy illustration, but hopefully it gets your minds thinking that in order to experience all that God has, these physical bodies cannot do that. I like what one person says. They say, Paul has made the point that it would be a heavenly body, a holy spiritual body. Not talking, again, remember we talked last week, or uh, two weeks ago, that when Paul mentions in this passage a spiritual body, he's not talking about being a spirit. No, it's talking about a new body that is empowered by the Spirit of God. Uh, uh, a physical body. A spiritual body. A physical uh, body empowered by the Spirit like the one that Paul knows Christ has. That is what is necessary. He goes on and this individual says, in these verses, Paul explains that it is only by a dramatic God-given change, like the change a seed goes through to become a plant or a tree, that the kind of resurrection Paul and the other apostles have in mind can take place. There will be a change. So we see that a change in verse 50 is necessary. And then verses 51 to 53 are going to explain for us, as one individual says, the human incapacity to enter into the imperishable kingdom of God, it is overcome. You see, we will be changed. We will be made ready for our spiritual inheritance. This is a hope, a steadfast hope for the future. And before we even get to verse 58, this hope enables us to be faithful in the present because we know that God has the future. We know it. How many of you follow March Madness? Yeah, you know, everybody's bracket gets totally messed up, right? Because we can't tell the future. There are so many surprises and upsets that happen in the tournament. Now, if it was like the NBA where you had like a seven-game series, uh, all of the good teams would pro that you would suspect that would advance would advance. But, but in college, it's like if, if your team, if the better team has a bad game and they lose, they're out. And, 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 and we don't know the future. And, and something as simple as a March Madness bracket that you fills out shows us just how finite we are. But imagine filling out that bracket knowing what the end was. Make you a lot more confident when you filled that out, wouldn't it? You see, the future hope that we have gives us Present day steadfastness. Present day endurance. Present day faithfulness. In what verses 51 to 53 are going to show us is that we can have hope for the future not only because we have been given imperishable promises but we know that we will be able to enjoy those imperishable promises. Why? Because we shall all be changed. If we are in Christ, we will be changed. Right now, in our spiritual lives, in our hearts, through God's sanctification process, he is making us become more and more like Jesus. But that change must not simply be a heart progressive change. It will also be an outward change that we are changed both inwardly and outwardly to enjoy God's presence and all that he has forevermore. Verses 51 to 52, Paul gives us a mystery revealed. Look at verse 51. Behold, now before we go any further, I want to emphasize that word to you. I already told you that Paul gave a little marker. What I'm about to say is important. 
when he says, I tell you this, brothers, in verse 50. In other words, listen up. In verse 51, we have the second highlight marker. He says, behold. So in other words, again, listen to what I am going to tell you. Don't lose sight of this. Perk up your ears. Behold, I tell you a mystery. The word mystery in the Bible, in the New Testament, is speaking of something that was once hidden, but now revealed. In the, in, in the religious cults of the first century and before and, and beyond, the word mystery was always used of like a secret rite. Something that only a few special privileged people had access to. Something that was hidden for the spiritually elite. When the New Testament uses that same word mystery, it's talking about something that was once hidden, but now God has openly revealed it. And Paul is now going to give the church here something that is now revealed. What is that? He says, we shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed. What is this mystery? The mystery that Paul now reveals is that every believer in Christ will be changed. Even those that are alive at Christ's coming. Now, as Paul makes clear, this change does not necessitate death. So it is not simply those that die and that are resurrected that will be changed. Even those that are alive when Jesus comes back, that are followers of Jesus, they will be changed. Now, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 to 18, many of you are familiar with that passage. The mystery was not that not everyone would die. Paul already says that in, in 1 Thessalonians chapter 4. That we who are alive and remain will be caught up together, and so we will forever be with the Lord. The mystery is dealing with this bodily change that we will experience. And this bodily change doesn't matter if you have already passed away or if you are alive at Christ's coming. There will be a change that takes place. And whenever we see that word change, it should bring comfort to us because I don't know about you, but I know my inability to change myself. <laughs> uh, let, let, let alone a, uh, a, a new glorified body that Christ provides, but, but just even the everyday changes that need to be made. The flesh cannot change the flesh. And again, we see God's faithfulness, like we talked about last week, that faithful is the one who calls you who also will do it. Amidst all of your struggles that you are experiencing today. Did you know that the resurrection gives you comfort? That God is going to do a complete transformation. We, get, we struggle in the here and now because that change is like an up and down valley. But God is completing the work that he has started in you. Rest your hope on him. Death does not necessitate change, but then in verse 52, we see the timing of when this change takes place. We shall all be changed, get this, in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable. There's that word again. And we shall be changed. Man. What would take 
a million years, figuratively speaking. I mean, we can't in and of ourselves make really any lasting change in and of ourselves. God does in a moment. Doesn't that highlight the power of God? Did you know that that's the God you serve? That's the God that is at work in your life today. The God who has the power to, with the snap of a finger, completely change everything. And sometimes we get discouraged. Why does God not seem to be changing my circumstances? Why does God not seem to be working the way I feel that he should? Did you know that even that is an indicator of God's seeking to change and transform to transform us from thinking according to our own ways and our own understanding to his. We serve a powerful God. In this text here, verse 52, it says, in a moment. A couple months ago, uh, or maybe weeks ago, I don't remember, uh, you know, Part of being in a church family, the benefits of being in a church family is you know people that know stuff, so you're able to reach out to people. In fact, uh, uh, I reached out to Nate to, to, to look at a vehicle for me because I don't know anything about vehicles. So you, 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 in, in a church family, you're able to, to know people. I texted Aaron Onice a couple weeks or a month or so ago, and I said, hey, Aaron, quick question. Can an atom be divisible? Can you divide an atom? And, and Matt's another go-to guy to ask about this. And he said, well, and, and correct me if I'm, if I'm not right. Uh, he said, they used to say an atom is indivisible, but you can, you can divide an atom because it's composed of uh, neutrons and protons, right? So, so you can divide an atom, but an atom is the smallest unit of matter, Correct? Well, what got me down that line is, interestingly enough, when the Bible says, in a moment, do you know what word moment is? The word atomos. What do you think we get atomos? What do you think that is? Atom. A moment. The smallest amount of time. You could even say an indivisible unit of time. Another way to translate in a moment would be in a split second. And then the text goes on to describe when this change take, takes place. In the twinkling of an eye. Now that word twinkling can get confusing. It's not talking about, you know, you're gazing into your spouse's or girlfriend or boyfriend's eyes and you just see the sparkle. I remember in college... Um, yeah, seeing couples, they would be sitting in the commons area and they're just staring into each other's faces two inches away. It's like, oh, gag me. Um, but this isn't, this isn't a twinkle in your eye like there's, a, there's just a shine that's coming off of your eye. No, it's talking about the rapid nature of a single movement of your eye. Or the blink of an eye. You know how fast your eyes can scan the room. So in the smallest unit of time, as fast as, the, as a rapid eye movement, this change will take place. And then there's another keynote here. At the last trumpet... Trumpets were very important to the people of Israel in the Old Testament. In fact, trumpets would be a, a general part of the way of life for, for Old Testament Israel to, to be able to communicate. It could think about being at camp. What was, uh, if you went to camp as a teenager, what was the, one of the common methods of communication at camp? For me, it was oftentimes the loudspeaker. Here's this morning's announcements. You have the, the, the annoying trumpet sound, you know, at 6 a.m. when you're uh, over the intercom and you're called to get up. And, 
And uh, well, the trumpet served the purpose to instruct the people of Israel. Trumpets gave instruction to the people. They marked the new year. There would be trumpets blown to announce a new king. Trumpets would signal the battle call, which holds significance here in our text. Trumpets would serve to sound an alarm, amongst other things. You think of when the children of Israel marched around the walls of Jericho. And on that last day, the trumpets were blasted out. The people yelled and the walls came down. Well, another significance of trumpets is that trumpets were to declare the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is a specific phrase that we see both in the Old Testament and the New Testament. The day of the Lord, and I'll just, uh, just really quickly here, the day of the Lord was both a day of judgment and a day of blessing. It would be blessing to God's people who were following him, but it would be judgment to those that were in rebellion against him. And I just want to give you a couple um, passages from the Old Testament and then um, the Gospels to show you how similar the descriptions are in regards to the trumpet. As for, and then as 1 Thessalonians says, the cry of the archangel, a cry of command. Look at Isaiah 27, 13. This is talking about the day of the Lord in the context of salvation. And in that day, a great trumpet will be blown. And those who were lost in the land of Assyria and those who were driven out of the land of Egypt will come and worship the Lord on the holy mountain at Jerusalem. This is talking about the day of the Lord that the people were to be expectant with. A little bit of a longer passage, Zephaniah chapter 1. This is talking about both the day of the Lord that was going to come soon and, and, and then it speaks of the ultimate day of the Lord at the end of history. In warning against the people of Judah, it says the great day of the Lord is near. Near and hastening fast. The sound of the day of the Lord is bitter. The mighty man cries aloud there. A day of wrath is that day. A day of distress and anguish a day of ruin and devastation, a day of darkness and gloom, a day of clouds and thick darkness, and listen to this description, a day of trumpet blast and battle cry against the fortified cities and against the lofty battlements. This, the day of the Lord was both a day of great anticipation and a day of great fright, depending on whether you were with the Lord or against him. And then we read in the book of Matthew, Jesus talking about his second coming says this, and he will send out his angels with, there we have it again, a loud trumpet call. And they will gather his elect from the four winds from one end of heaven to the other. Here we have once again this day of the Lord that is announced by the trumpet call in regards to salvation. Salvation for his people and judgment for those who are against him. If you turn quickly to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, if you're using a, a pew Bible, that's page 987. Verse 16 says this, For the Lord himself will descend from heaven with a cry of command. Sounds a lot like the Zephaniah passage. With the voice of an archangel and with the sound of the trumpet of God. And the dead in Christ will rise first. 
Then we who are alive and who are left will be caught up together with them in the clouds to meet the Lord in the air. And so we will always be with the Lord. And what's the conclusion here? Therefore, encourage one another with these words. So we see this trumpet, as we're going to see in verses, uh, on Easter in verse, verses 55 and 56 and 57, this trumpet not only heralds Christ's coming, it is a trumpet of battle. Why? Because Christ is coming to destroy all evil. It says here, death will be swallowed up in victory. Jesus is coming as the commander and king. And, and, and there are differences of opinion as far as, well, when does Jesus come? Does Jesus come secretly and rapture his church and then come again seven years later? Uh, good people think that. Others feel, no, Jesus comes once and he catches his people in the air and then all of God's people come as Jesus defeats all of his enemies. We're not going to get into that this morning, but what I do want us to see is the reality that this is coming. And we are to be encouraged and to encourage with the truth of Jesus' sure return. He is coming as the mighty warrior who will overthrow all wickedness and who is coming to receive us to himself. Now, I, I have here, I didn't forget, Nico, I didn't get a chance to talk to you before the service. You want to come up here? Nico is a, a trumpet player. How many years have you learned the trumpet? Two? All right. Well, my brother, uh, Ben, who years ago did an internship here, if you remember um, Ben, my, my, my uh, children call him Uncle Ben. You know, they always want to eat rice. Um, but he went on a trip to Israel, and, and he got me this shofar. So it's an authentic Israeli shofar. And it took a couple years for this thing to stop smelling like death. <laughs> but I have it in my office. And uh, just out of curiosity, you can go to YouTube and you can Google like uh, shofar trumpet blasts, and it's really cool all the things that they can do with shofars. Um, but, but I asked Nico if he could just blow it. You don't have to do anything special, just whatever you feel like, and you can hear the shofar. And just imagine, man, that trumpet blast by the, the angels of God. Also, give it one more blow for, for dramatic effect. <laughs> All right, let's give Nico a hand. <laughs> that, is, that is great. Great job, Nico. I know when you're nervous, those lips can stiffen up and not be as loose, but you did an awesome job. But man, we're waiting for that trumpet, aren't we? Amen? All of this is going to happen, verse 52 says, at the last trumpet. And then notice, for the trumpet will sound. This isn't a maybe it'll sound, or, you know, the trumpeteer is going to get it a little bit late. No, the trumpet will sound. And it's going to sound at the exact time that the Lord desires it to be so. The trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. Notice the complete contrast of those two words, dead and imperishable. What do you think of when you hear the word dead? You think of decomposition. You think of rotting. You think of grossness. You think of just finality. I'll never forget when, uh, when I was a kid and, and my grandma, um, I was at her funeral and, and uh, you know, 
a kid's curiosity, I was like, what does that body feel like? It looks so fake. So I mustered up all the courage I could, and I touched the hand really quick. And, and maybe you've, you've touched a, a, a body at a funeral, um, but I just remember it feeling just so cold and hard and lifeless. That word dead points to finality, but because of Jesus, that word dead is changed to its complete opposite in verse 52, imperishable. It's sown like a dead seed and it is raised imperishable. And we shall be changed. This is the reality we have to look forward to. And then as we close this morning, I just want us to look at verse 53, again at this necessity of change. Paul, he repeats what he's already said in verse 50. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable. Now, if Paul keeps repeating this, this must be a pretty important theme, right? Uh, Paul keeps saying, don't view the life to come through the eyes of the present. Don't think that somehow your body is just going to be a tad bit better version of what you see here. Because these individuals, from the question in verse 35, some in the church were trying to negate the resurrection by saying, it just doesn't make sense, Paul. They're trying to compare spiritual truths with earthly truths. And it just doesn't go that way. What is going to happen according to verse 53 is the perishable body is going to put on the imperishable. That's a key word. The language of putting on. It must put on the imperishable. That word must, it can also be translated, it is of necessity for the perishable to put on imperishableness. This is God-ordained, just as verse 38 says, God gives it a body as he has chosen into each kind of seed its own body. This word picture of putting on is very familiar in the Bible. In fact, it talks about our being from outside of Christ to being in Christ. Galatians 3.27, For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. So there's a change that happened there, right? We were once outside of Christ. We came to Christ in salvation. And then we have put on Christ. We are new creatures. It's almost like the putting on of a garment. This shows us that the glorified body, it is new. It is something different now that we're putting on. But it is the same individual that's putting it on, right? You see, there's both continuation and discontinuation. As we think even of creation, two weeks ago I mentioned this, but what does Romans 8 say regarding creation? Even creation groans, is longing for the day when God's children are glorified so that the earth can too be made new. In fact, did you know, talking about this putting on analogy, Psalm 102, verses 25 to 26 says this, Of old you laid the foundations of the earth, and the heavens are the work of your hands. They will perish, but you will remain. They will wear out like a garment. You will change them like a robe. And they, speaking of the old creation, will pass away. It's a putting on. And creation itself is longing to put on the new. And just like creation groans, this is what Paul says in 2 Corinthians 5, speaking of us, of himself. 
in this tent we groan, and there's that language, putting on, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling. If indeed by putting it on, we may, we may not be found naked. That is without Christ on the final day. For while we are still in this tent, we groan being burdened. Can you, can you identify with that language? Being burdened in this tent. All those health issues, all the struggles with sin, all of the anxieties of life. But it says not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed so that what is mortal may be swallowed up by life. And we're going to see here, it talks about death being swallowed up in victory. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. Wow. Can you take a minute? If you are in Christ today, you have been prepared for this very thing. Doesn't matter what your life circumstances look like. Doesn't matter what your feelings feel like. You have been and are bear, being prepared for this very thing. You have been given the Holy Spirit as a guarantee that Jesus is going to complete the work that he started in you. Does that give you comfort? Does that not give you a call to follow this one who is preparing you for this very thing? Are you going to shun the very one who is hope or look for another way? Today, if you have never come to Christ in repentance and look to Jesus in faith as your salvation, will you persist in your rebellion against God? Oh, that today would be the day whether you're an unbeliever for the first time that you turn to Christ, or if you are a believer here, that again, with open arms, you say, oh God, how I tend to cling to the things of this world, to cling to the cares and concerns of this world, and to forget my hope, but I once again place everything at your feet.